Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton 100 has big changes in mind for the city, including multi-sport complexes and affordable housing. We're going to talk about that on the show. Elizabeth May stepped down as leader of the Canadian Green Party. She joins the show to explain why she made the decision and what the plans are for the future. And what is driving the separatist movements in Alberta and Saskatchewan? We'll get into that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday we talked about what might happen at Bayfront Park, but as we mentioned, it's part of a bigger plan that's going to be presented to City Council. And uh, this is this is getting down to the short strokes right now. I mean, we've been talking about stuff in a very uh, philosophical way, that hey, this might happen, this could happen. But uh, sooner than later, Council's going to have to actually make a commitment to this one way or another. Joining us to talk about what could be happening here is uh, P.J. Mercati, CEO of the Carmen's Group, of course, and uh, one of the members of uh, Hamilton 100. P.J., good morning. How are you today? Doing great, Bill. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the larger plan here uh, that you're going to be presenting. We talked a little bit yesterday about what might happen at Bayfront Park, but that's only one part and only one part of the city that's going to be impacted by this. Uh, for sure. This truly is, Bill, a 10-year a community building exercise, and, and we truly see this 2030 Commonwealth Games opportunity as being something that could potentially impact everybody in the community in one fashion or another, and we want to see it as the biggest community engagement exercise that Hamilton has ever seen. Uh, the opportunity that could come from this is bigger than two weeks of sport. It, it impacts you know, the, you know, the, the affordable housing issue in the community. It touches on you know, various environmental concerns in the community, and we have a big social inclusion plan as, as well. Uh, and then, you know, you know, bringing that back all to the, the, the facility infrastructure that can come out of this, uh, you know, we're looking at significant uh, you know, investments in our community facilities, uh, many investments that are absolutely needed, uh, many investments that the city is going to have to make in the future, whether we have a games or not. And so we're looking at, at this opportunity as being something that could truly benefit the entire city. And, and we're looking forward to presenting our vision to council tomorrow. We've had some great discussions with many of the councillors to get their feedback. We've had discussions with many organizations in the community, both sport organizations, not-for-profit institutions, and the educational institutions. All of the major educational institutions are at the table with us right now, including the two school boards. So we're excited to present this vision to council and to, to truly you know, get their feedback on, on how we can maximize these games for the greatest good of Hamilton. PJ, when you started this whole enterprise, and you were one of the founding members of this group, uh, where do you begin in a situation like this? Is, is it a blank slate, or do you look at the existing facilities and say, yeah, that'll work, no, that's not going to work, uh, check that box off? I mean, this is, a, this is a long, long process that you've gone through. For sure, and and you know, to be truly honest, Bill, when when Greg Maychak, who's you know our bid manager, approached me, you know, well over a year ago, uh, it was initially out of the infrastructure discussion that this was born. So so obviously, Carmen's Group and our you know various partners were exploring potential opportunities with the city's you know and entertainment and sport assets, and then when we started to you know to peel back the onion and look at every way that the Commonwealth Games could impact the community. That's when I didn't, you know, I, and I truly didn't realize the scope of what this could do and what this could mean for the community until we started having discussions with various 
partners and parties, uh, you know, at, you know, in, in the community. And we started to explore other sets of Commonwealth games that were successful, the Glasgow games, the Gold Coast games, the, the Melbourne and Manchester games. And when we started to see how the games essentially transformed those communities and those cities and helped them to become international cities, that's when we realized, wow, this is bigger than just two weeks of sport. This is bigger than just infrastructure needs in the community. This is about city building. This is about uh, community branding and getting Hamilton's name out there on a, on a, in, in a major way, on a global scale. Uh, and this is about potentially attracting investment into the community uh, on an unprecedented scale. And, and you know, we're delighted that uh, Gowling's law firm, so Lou Fraporti, who is the managing partner of Gowling's, is going to be speaking with us tomorrow uh, during our presentation to council, where he's going to share the strategy that Gowling's has around a global economic impact um, and social impact strategy and connecting Hamilton to the world and bringing the world to Hamilton and showcasing what McMaster and Mohawk and our other uh, great uh, institutions here are doing. And, and so there's a major economic development play uh, you know, that's attached to this. So, so it's much bigger than that first conversation we had over a year ago and much, much bigger than the co- when I presented to council back in, back in March just to, just to share that we wanted to go down this road. Uh, it's, it's, it's exploded and evolved uh, in, you know, into, into something much larger than what we initially thought. Well, and this is the, the key element as far as I can see, because there's always been a reticence, I think, by other communities, and I think there was even in Hamilton when we've gone down this road in the past, that you're going to build some of this stuff if you're the successful bidder. Uh, but then a lot of it, when the games are over, it sits there as white elephants. And we saw that with the 76 Olympics in Montreal. Uh, you know, the velodrome that was constructed, of, well, the stadium itself, of course, uh, the Olympic Stadium there, which is basically sitting there empty now. The velodrome, I think, turned into a, a garden of some kind. Uh, but what I've seen and what Grade Megcheck has told us in the past, and I, I guess you've had eyes on this as well, is, is the transformational aspect of this to a community. So in other words, the stuff that you're going to build for these games is actually going to be sustainable for that community long after the games are gone. Absolutely. And the Commonwealth Games Federation, they're all about legacy, and they want to make sure that the facilities that are constructed, that they have a meaningful purpose in the community for the neighborhoods after the games. They were, when they came to visit Hamilton, uh, they were, they were um, you know, impressed with the city, uh, but when we started to go through the venues plan at that point, they were, they were you know, pounding the point home that we need to focus on legacy and, and what these facilities will do for the community after the games. And so we've been very intentional about making sure that our venues plan answers community needs you know, for the various sports, for the various uh, you know, neighborhoods that these will potentially uh, go in, and that there is going to be a long-term purpose. Uh, for these, you know, for these venues, and many of them are already a part of the city's master capital plan and things that the city is looking at doing. Uh, to give you one example, you know, council has approved the cricket pitch at Confederation Park. Well, that is great because cricket is one of the Commonwealth Games sport. It's 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 a major sport in South Asia. It has a massive following, and so the fact that Hamilton has already approved that. Uh, you know, that initiative uh, with, you know, Hamilton Capital Dollars is perfect because it's going to be a sport for the future, for, you know, community groups of, of you know, Hamilton 2.0. And so that's one example of how one venue is going to, you know, both satisfy the needs of the Commonwealth bid and satisfy the needs of Hamilton moving forward. 
And we're trying to make sure that all the venues that we've proposed have a long-term benefit for the community. And ultimately, by going through this exercise, we will be able to leverage up to 80% federal and provincial funding that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to. But because it's going to be captured underneath the Commonwealth Games umbrella, we'll be able to qualify for funding from Sport Canada and, uh, and from the federal government in a, in a major way, in a bigger way than they've ever had, uh, have done in the past because the funding formula for previous sets of games has been a third, a third, a third, yeah. the feds, the province, the municipality. And so now the fact that the feds are willing to go in uh, 50%, that's a game changer on its own. And so that's where it'd be foolish. It would be irresponsible to ignore what this opportunity could do for Hamilton. Let's talk about arena. I don't know if you've noticed, PJ, there's a bit of a debate going on right now about arenas <laughs> and building them. Uh, you probably heard something about that. Uh, uh, how big an arena do you need if, if you're the successful bidder? Uh, do you need 18,000 seats? Can you do with 6,000 seats? I mean, what, where, what, is there a number in your head there that you need? So the, the, uh, our proposed venues plan uh, has gymnastics to be held at the at the existing arena site and so for the, for the purposes of the venue plan we stated that the existing arena works for gymnastics and uh, and I believe and and don't don't quote me on this bill but I believe it's anywhere from it's between 5 6 7 8000 minimum um, for gymnastics in terms of the, the the needs for that so any new facility um, needs to be to to be built to at least qualify our bid plan to host gymnastics um and and so we just need to build it for that minimum threshold but like you know like we said um with regards to the federation legacy is important so they want to make sure that this facility is built with a long-term um, benefit long-term legacy uh you know in as part of the strategy to, to build it so they're going to be looking to make sure that that you know to your point that these aren't white elephants that these are purposefully built with meaningful impact for the community long term but the minimum i believe is um it's it's yeah north of north of 5000 uh, but i'm not sure the specific number for gymnastics but i know that it's um you know it's definitely between the five and ten thousand dollar number. So the, the, the discussions that have been going on so far, and I know you're an interested observer in all of this. You and I have talked about this a few times. We run into the, the TICAD games. Uh, th that, that's within the, the realm of possibility. Then the numbers that the city and even Mr. Andler are talking about, uh, whichever way they decide to go on this, this is that's going to be compatible with what you guys want to do for the bid. Absolutely, and and whether it's a renovated arena or a new arena, uh, so long as the arena. Uh, fits the specs of the of the CGF, the Commonwealth Games Federation, and and gymnast and the you know gymnastics event, then then that facility qualifies under the Commonwealth Games funding umbrella. So it certainly is an opportunity for for Hamilton to to get a new or renovated arena out of this exercise, leveraging federal and provincial dollars that otherwise wouldn't be available for a project like that. Um, and similarly, you know, with the the convention facility, we've slated for boxing to be held at the convention center. Um, you know, over the course of the past few years, uh, the uh, Three Lines Promotions Boxing Group, the Steeltown Boxing Club, have hosted boxing events at the convention center. Some of them have been north of, uh, north of 1,200 people, 1,500 people, and it's been a great event. So, so the fact that the convention facility could be used for boxing and we could leverage that same uh, infrastructure investment from the feds in the province is another reason why you know we're looking at this and 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 in addition to boxing 
a new convention center may also play host to the uh, broadcast center, to the media center, etc. cetera. Uh, and so there's so many overlapping and intersecting opportunities with long-term community needs uh, and this set of games. And, and, and so we're trying to marry them as best as we can for the purpose of Hamilton uh, and to, and to you know, provide solutions for Hamilton. What about track and field events? Uh, Tim Horton Field does not have a track. Uh, and, and obviously you're going to need some sort of a, an arena stadium uh, situation for those events. And that, that so by the way, we should mention to our people, this Commonwealth Games, it's, it's summertime. It's going to be nice weather. So these are outdoor activities. Correct. And we had initially, as part of our, and this is where going through the process and exercise and getting feedback is absolutely critical. And we've been, you know, we've been very transparent and open with the various uh, groups. Uh, and so when we, when we um, you know, started this exercise, we had actually identified Tim Hortons Field as being site number one. But then we, uh, you know, when we went to visit um, the Commonwealth Games Federation and their Birmingham uh, host committee uh, in Birmingham in July, we, you know, they Google mapped Hamilton and, you know, and we went to look at their track facility and we were like, wow, okay, Tim Hortons Field's not going to work. Then we thought, okay, what's a fallback option? And then we said, well, maybe let's look at track at McMaster University. They've got a track. Then when we went and then when the CGF were here in, in, in July, August, uh, they, uh, we visited Mac and they're like, ah, it's a bit tight to, to pull off what we want to pull off. Uh, and then, you know, again, we go on Google Maps and then they're like, hey, this Mohawk sports car uh, sports park. What's uh, what's this uh, facility about, or what's this park all about? So then we went up there, and they fell in love with Mohawk Sports Park, and they said this could be an absolutely perfect, uh, perfect site for the track and field events. And uh, and so you know, so we're looking at at a potential refurbishment uh, and and uh, and permanent, uh, you know, grandstand built there with offices, locker rooms, you know, building out the infrastructure there and also look at, uh, you know, a, a temporary track, a warm-up track that you would need for the games and looking at potentially bubbling that in, uh, you know, post-games. Councillor Jackson, when we met with him about a month ago to share this with him, he was certainly excited about the prospects of what this could do for that area. He wanted to make sure that, that whatever we do is not higher than the Mohawk Ice Center, the quad pad that's there. So, so he was, you know, providing some very good feedback. He wants us to present to his community group, uh, you know, early in the new year or after we present to council. So, so that's, you know, an example of how going through this process has provided us with outstanding feedback that we've now been able to build into our venues plan. So we've been trying our best to, to go through that type of detailed exercise so that way we're not just winging it when we present to council uh tomorrow that we we're coming with you know with some some concrete um you know feedback and some good ideas that many of the councillors have, have provided to us as well pj we've got about a minute left here uh at some point we have to talk about money and and i know that's not going to be sure. part of the presentation but I, I you know time is getting short here you've got to uh i guess do something in the way of a presentation to, to the canadian contingent here pretty soon uh, in the next couple of weeks, I guess. So when, when do we get sure. down to, to talking dollars and cents, and when do you need a commitment from City Council? So to, to more, so all we're asking from Council tomorrow is permission for Hamilton 100 to submit the bid. Uh, and then the rubber's going to meet the road when we go through the tri-party agreement discussion and exercise. And, and that's when, you know, we'll be flushing out the financial model and, and you know, figuring out, you know, with greater clarity what these numbers are going to look like, but just from a high-level, broad perspective, um, you know, the games themselves will, you know, will be low-end between a billion and a billion five, but 
this is the important thing to to you know for us to remember as we as we explore this about 200 to 250 million dollars of that is covered through games revenue so the games themselves through ticket sales sponsorships actually generate revenue and that stays with the host community so that's a very important part of the overall model is those games revenue in fact that they stay with the host city the federal government is in for 50 percent the provincial government we're hoping is in for 30 percent so that leaves a very manageable number for you know the city to to cover and if we're looking at having private sector um, you know public institutions and educational institutions we look at naming rights uh, opportunities, and then we look at leveraging all the other stuff with the city's existing capital budget, land in kind, uh, look at other communities that could potentially participate in and help us out with this bid financing. You know, it, the, all of a sudden the numbers and the economic model becomes very favorable. And ultimately, this is an important thing for, for, you know, for your listeners and for the city to realize is that, is that there will be um, over a billion dollars injected into this community from the federal government, the provincial government, and through the games-generated revenue. And there will be a minimum ROI on any tax dollars spent of anywhere from six to ten times return on investment for the community. So this it's, is it's, a it major sounds, yeah, it sounds pretty incredible. benefit. It does. Well, we're going to see how council responds to it tomorrow anyway. Uh, thanks so much for this, PJ. We'll stay in touch as this no rolls problem. out over the next little while. You got it. Thank you so much, Bill. PJ McCanny from the Carmen's Group and uh, Hamilton 100. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, welcome to the program now Elizabeth May, who announced yesterday, of course, that she is stepping down as the leader of the uh, the federal Green Party. Elizabeth, good morning. Thank you for the time today. Oh, good morning, Bill. Great to talk with you. Good to have you on the sh- show again. It's been a busy couple of months for you, and I'm glad we finally <laughs> were able to no catch kidding. up. Wait, yeah, what, I was going to ask what you've been up to, but I think we all know that. <laughs> you, you've been musing about stepping aside for quite some time. Uh, what made you make the decision at this point? What, what, what was, was there one thing that, that, that said, okay, this is it? Well, the overwhelming driver was that since 2016, when I realized I was not going to be, uh, the party wasn't in a position to want a leadership contest, everyone wanted me to stay. I had the opposite problem of some leaders. I had high approval ratings in 94%. So I realized I'm going to have to lead the party into the 2019 election, being the fourth. And my daughter, who was then... um, 20, now she's 28. Anyway, so she said, she said, Mom, you, you can do it, but promise me this is the last time. Because if you keep working at this pace, I'm never going to have any time with you. You're, you know, like what she's concerned about isn't time off, it's, you know, it's death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she said, Mom, you've got promise me. So I promised her. So there was no question in my mind that after the 2019 election, I would be stepping down. In terms of the immediate timing, we had a really important meeting of our federal council, which represents volunteers from across the country, our shadow cabinet, and all three of us as elected MPs just this weekend in Ottawa. And I put to everyone what I thought was important timing. Number one, minority parliament, we could be back to the polls in 18 months, maybe two years. We couldn't dawdle. I couldn't delay. I had to make it really clear. I want to step down on Monday, and then it takes a while to run a proper, exciting leadership race where Canadians get engaged. I hope a lot of people join the Green Party to vote on who our next leader will be. So it it, it just the timing kind of uh, was perfect, and it was exactly what I wanted. 
is this a party that's on on the rise? I mean, I'm, I'm, I was just talking with uh, Professor Ramos uh, from Dalhousie just before you joined us, and we were talking about the fact, obviously, your numbers are up uh, slightly over even you know, the best showing that the Green Party has ever had, so that's good news, clearly. Yeah. But but you're part of the conversation now. The environment and climate change issues are now uh, in the top one or two issues, I think, in everybody's minds right across the country, maybe yeah. with the odd exception of some people in Alberta, I suppose. But But other than that... Uh, are people going to be turning to the Green Party now, not just as, as an alternative, but maybe as their first choice? Yes, I'm seeing it more. We are seeing it more all the time. I mean, our vote went up by 87 percent. We had uh, 50 candidates across the country with uh, finishes of 10 percent or more. We've never had that kind of and it's broad, right? It's not just one region. I, I was listening to part of that interview about the, you know, that notion of Western alienation. Mm-hmm. Um, b- by the way, our current voting system gives more power to parties that are all about one region versus the rest of the country. Witness that the Bloc Québécois got very, you know, they had more votes than we did, but not by much. And they got 32 seats and we got three because all their votes are in Quebec. So I hope we can get back to electoral reform because I think it's an important part of national unity for people to know you can vote for what you want and have a good, responsible parliament working that represents all parts of Canada. Uh, having having the Liberals shut out of Alberta and Saskatchewan, I think, is not healthy for the country. Clearly, people voted for them, but not in sufficient numbers in our winner-take-all riding-by-riding system. In any case, it, it, it looking across the country, we had such high support. The Maritimes, for instance, our total vote in the Maritimes was 14% popular vote. That's stunning. Now, we got one seat out of that in Fredericton, but there were a lot of very close second-place finishes. So I think it's a good time to say we have momentum. Let's use that momentum into choosing a new leader. And I sure didn't want to be one of those politicians who makes the mistake of staying well past your best before date. You know, you really you want to get off the shelf and out of the fridge. But when when, when you've got uh, momentum and a positive result on your side. Elizabeth, what about you personally? Uh, we should remind our listeners, by the way, that uh, you may be stepping down as leader, but you're not going away. Uh, you're still right. going to sit there. there. You had mused before that you might want to actually take a shot at the, the speaker's job. I think you've changed your mind about that, haven't you? Well, I love the idea. Honestly, though, I would love to be Speaker of the House. The timing isn't right now. I mean, listeners probably don't think about it very much. There's a Speaker of the House at the front of the room in Parliament. You see them on the news now and then. But that's a very unique process of choosing the Speaker. It's It's a secret ballot. All members of Parliament vote. And it only takes place immediately after the election. So this time around, with brand new, wonderful, impressive member of parliament for Fredericton, Jenica Atwin, and Paul Manley, who, while being reelected, only had one month in the House before the election because he was elected in a very late by-election this spring. May 6th, he was elected. So they both, I mean, I, I said when, when media asked me if I was interested in being speaker, but the decision has to be one that my number one concern is what do Paul and Jenica think? And they said, you know, we do not want to be sitting in Parliament with all those people heckling all around us and not have the benefit of of your experience of what the rules are, where we can get our oar in. Procedural details and almost procedural trivia is kind of my specialty area. And, and Jenica and Paul need me with them right now. And I'm frankly happy to be, uh, you know, 
in the trenches, as it were. Once you become the Speaker of the House, if I should be fortunate enough to, to have that occur at some point in my life, you really have to stay nonpartisan. So, and that would include having a harder time pushing for climate action. And that is my number one driving force. None of the other parties understand the science. We have a very critical negotiation coming up next month. It just moved. Some of your listeners may have noticed that it moved from Chile to uh, to Spain and to Madrid mm-hmm. because of the unrest in Chile. But that's a critical conference, and I want to be there, and I will be there, pushing for every country, but particularly my own, to stop being a laggard and do what's required. Elizabeth May, uh, still with us and uh, still going to be a voice in this upcoming parliament. Uh, As always, Elizabeth, thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Anytime. Thanks so much, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Elizabeth May. Uh, gone but not forgotten. And not ruling out the idea of Speaker, just probably not in this term of uh, the Parliament anyway. Uh, there are some rumors, too, that uh, that she may be in line for a Senate appointment. I think that's really some of the opposition conservatives that are talking about that, uh, because uh, she uh, doesn't seem to, to be in, very interested in that at all. And uh, that's, that's an independent body now anyway, with uh, some of the crazy things that are going on in the Senate that were announced the other day about this independent body of, uh, of 11 senators that are kind of going off doing their own thing now. Probably better off staying in the House of Commons where you can actually have a voice and do some good uh, with some of these policies that she's talked about. And uh, obviously a a minority parliament is going to have to adhere to it. And that includes things like uh, electoral reform and climate change. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is really problematic. A uh, Ipsos poll that was done for Global News uh, indicates that Alberta and Saskatchewan separatist sentiment is higher than it has ever been. What's going on here? And are we really at that point where we could be talking about separation, one province, maybe two provinces actually leaving Confederation? I want to bring uh, Christo Avalos into the conversation, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow of history at the University of Toronto. Uh, Christo, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. We had, uh, I, I mean, I can remember the separatist movement, at, well, the bloc, obviously, in Quebec, and, and, and the referendum that they had a couple of times, actually, about separation. Uh, we've known that uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan are pretty disgruntled about a number of things right now, but are you surprised that it's gotten to this point where they're actually talking about separation? I mean, there's always sort of these discussions from the West, in some sense, when the government federally doesn't match what they want. And so this is different than Quebec separatism, because as you know, Quebec, before the rise of the bloc, voted solidly liberal federally, and yet both referenda happened under liberal governments, under the Trudeau government in the 80s and the Chrétien government in the 90s. And so Quebec separatism was sort of disconnected from who was in power in Ottawa, whereas in the West it seems very, very much related to the fact that Andrew Scheer did not win the election. So it's not a surprise that sentiments are rising. Perhaps they're higher than they normally are, but, but you know... Whenever a liberal government takes power or does something unpopular in the West, there is always discussion about, you know, the West wants out of Canada or the West wants a new deal. So none of that is terribly surprising. But I guess what we have to ask ourselves here, and, and, you know, we're trying to educate ourselves in this part of the country about what is fueling the anger right there. Is is it strictly Ottawa or, in this case, the Trudeau government's uh, approach to energy and, and climate? I mean, partially. But I think we have to also remember, and, and I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of Trudeau's energy policy. I'm, you know, I'm, personally, I'm against the pipeline, but, but Justin Trudeau and Rachel Notley, it should be remembered, and you know, the provincial MDP there, worked much harder for the pipeline than Stephen Harper and Jim Prentice that preceded them. 
They bought the pipeline. They tried to get it done. There is difficulties with interprovincial uh, relations, and there's also difficulties with uh, indigenous settler relations that make these projects more complicated than maybe people in the West would like. And so, on some ways, the Conservatives in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and most people there voted Conservative, or at least uh, a large a large plurality did, um, voted for a Prime Minister in Andrew Scheer, who promised pipelines and would give them a tax cut, and Justin Trudeau promised pipelines and would give them a tax cut. So I do find it curious because they do sort of have a center-right prime minister in Justin Trudeau. And I think the big key difference is the carbon tax, but it should be remembered, Justin Trudeau didn't apply the carbon tax to some of the biggest polluters, such as the tar sands. So it's curious for me because I actually don't know what's wrong. And there's a lot of you know anger at the equalization formula. But Alberta, even right now, Andrew Coyne noted this in a, in a recent piece, is by far the richest province in the country per capita, much richer than Ontario and Quebec. And so Albertans, I think, have perhaps a lack of perspective more than legitimate grievances. That's my personal view. Well, and that's what I think a lot of people in this part of the country are looking at right now and saying, what are you guys complaining about? Uh, you know, you don't like the government in Ottawa, and, and, and so what? I mean, you know, too bad, so sad. That's the way the election turned out. Uh, but it's it's not as if these people are living hand-to-mouth there. I mean, there's there's been a, a downturn, obviously, in fossil fuels, but that's worldwide. It's not really the, the federal government actually t- trying to go after, uh, you know, what's going on in the, in the tar sands in Alberta right now. As a matter of fact, I think there's an argument to be made that uh, that governments, as you said, have gone out of the way to try to give these guys uh, a bit of a push up the, of the ladder, you know, by uh, exempting them from carbon taxing and things of that nature. No, and certainly, I mean, if you look at it, Justin Trudeau, and again, like, uh, you know, I, I've been very critical of Justin Trudeau on your show and in others, but, but it has to be said that he put in political capital for Alberta, knowing that that province would not vote for him. You know, he, he fought hard for Alberta. He angered not everyone in B.C., but many people in B.C. in doing so. And he tried to get the pipeline built. And I think that his goal is to get the pipeline built. Whether or not you agree with it, it's probably going to happen eventually, given that the Liberals and Conservatives support it, and they form the vast majority of seats in the, in the, new, in the new upcoming parliament. But, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, Nathan Cullen, you know, the outgoing, uh, you know, uh, reti- recently retired NDP MP from B.C., said that, you know, many people in D.C. were mad with the federal government when they wanted to force a pipeline down our throats. But never did we talk about separating from Canada in the way that they're doing it in Alberta. And I think that it is very curious that this is such a heavy sentiment. And I think it's being driven by the fact that, you know, Alberta was the richest province per capita. It still is. But I think that they had it so good and and things broke down so quickly. They are looking for alternatives. And I think You know, it helps certain economic and social and political forces in Alberta to blame the federal government when the issue could have been that, you know, Alberta doesn't have a sales tax, when the issue is that Alberta didn't save sufficient amounts of its oil revenue, when the issue is that Alberta, unlike, say, Norway, never fully nationalized its energy resources to produce the wealth for the people of Alberta and instead largely allowed that wealth to be siphoned out by American oil companies. And whether it's all of these things, that have left Alberta in a difficult position. Jason Kenney and the Conservative Party federally don't want people to look at those things because then the response is actually, well, we need a socialist response for Alberta. And instead, it's much easier and politically convenient to blame the federal government or to blame the NDP or blame whoever. 
there's economic problems in just about every province, and it's all variations on the same theme, as, as you've already articulated here, Christo. Uh, but is, is there an argument to be made here that Alberta wants their cake and eat it too? In other words, they want they want a better equalization deal, of course. Uh, the, Kenny's been pretty loud about that. But as you've just mentioned, they, they don't pay sales tax in Alberta either. And it's like they say, well, we don't want to do anything to help ourselves. We want you guys to, to, to be the one that's going to take the burden here. Well, yeah, I think there's something to be said for, like, you know, there are levers Alberta can pull to improve its economic situation. Now, some of those things they should have done in the past, but, you know, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Alberta, 40, 50, 60 years ago, should have entirely 100% nationalized the energy industry, much like Norway did, and everybody in Alberta would be an effective millionaire because of, you know, the, the, the oil reserve money that was saved, and they, they could have been in uh, Norway on the prairies. But the liberal federal governments and provincial conservative slash social credit governments were ideologically disposed against that. In our own times, I really do feel like there are levers that can still be pulled. Alberta could raise a sales tax. Alberta has many options. Alberta has a relatively kind of low flat tax rate. They could raise taxes on upper income people in the province. But instead, I think this government's priority in Alberta has been to kind of cut and then blame the issues on uh, on the other provinces through equalization or blame the federal government. But again, it should be noted, Alberta, even with the oil downturn, is still per capita Canada's richest province. And yeah, there are some people who are struggling there, not because they're poorer than folks in the Maritimes, but because you know the, the economic levels have fallen. But I don't know what the response is. I mean, Alberta has the highest per capita income, but also has very high consumer debt. And maybe that's a cultural issue in Alberta, for, you know, like uh, on, on, on over over personal spending. But I don't see how changing the equalization formula is necessarily going to solve any of those issues. Again, I think this is fundamentally Jason Kenney knows because he won an election going after Rachel Notley, who is a very pro pipeline and pro oil premier. And he knows because Kenny's not stupid that the issues facing Alberta's oil industry have little to do with federal policy and have much to do with the economics of world oil prices. And Alberta oil is only feasible when the price of oil is high. And these issues are fundamental. And Kenny knows that there will be pressure on him four years from now when the next election comes if he can't get it done. So what Kenny is doing right now is shifting blame wherever he can to make it so that when the next election comes, the failure to get the pipeline built or to get the oil flowing is not on him, but you know the secret of environmental uh, you know, in, uh, you know, in, in, in locators or or Justin Trudeau or Rachel Notley or whoever, and and that, so that's the narrative that he's he's drumming into into Albertans, I guess, and uh, obviously it's resonating. They're going into the into this election right now, hating they did go into this election hating the, the Liberals, but even if they do this pipeline, and I agree with you, Christo, I think eventually it is going to get done. Uh, all is not going to be forgiven. I mean, they're still going to have a big hate on for for what's going to be happening in Ottawa. It seems to me as if it's done more along political lines than it is about economic lines. Yeah, certainly. Again, Justin Trudeau did quite a bit to get the pipeline built. Stephen Harper never nationalized the pipeline. Jim Prentice never nationalized the pipeline or provincialized a pipeline. Rachel Notley, of course, worked with Justin Trudeau to get that done. And both of them faced pressure from within their own parties to not do that, especially Rachel Notley. Um, you know, that the reality is they fought hard for that industry. But I think this goes to a fundamental question about what Alberta wants its place to be. Alberta complains that it has, and Saskatchewan as well in this election, complains that they have no voice in the current government. 
But that's because, uh, you know, in the near 50 seats between those two provinces, only one went to the non-conservatives. And that was, you know, a downtown Edmonton seat that went to the NDP. And so you have to ask yourselves, if Alberta continues to vote conservative, even when liberal and NDP governments federally and provincially do try to help them with their oil industry access issues, then those parties will eventually learn that it's not worth spending political capital on Alberta. And I mean, like if people say, well, why isn't Jagmeet Singh sticking up for Alberta? Well, it didn't make any sense. Alberta would never give him more than one seat. But B.C., British Columbia could have given him an extra dozen if the election was a little bit tighter. And I think that's the political reality. And I think and as much as the conservatives in general do not like this idea, but if, if Albertans and Saskatchewans want more representation and more weight being given to them politically, the only response is proportional representation, which would make it so that, you know, the parties fighting for an extra 5 to 10 percent of the vote in their region would actually make a difference on seats and would actually force the conservatives to fight for their vote more. Because, again, if we're being real right now, uh, half of the ridings in that province, the conservatives do not need to campaign. They win with 80 percent majorities. If there was proportionality, though, there'd be a difference between winning 70 and 80 percent, and they would have representation. And Pierre Trudeau um, didn't really ever support full proportional representation. But one of the things he wanted to see um, in an electoral system is something that stops regional divisions. Having one region almost entirely represented by one party and in another region represented almost entirely by another creates some of these issues. And I do feel electoral reform would be a way to ensure that even in Saskatchewan and Alberta, there would be NDP and liberal and maybe even green voices. And then there'd be more conservative voices in Ontario and Quebec and the Maritimes. Well, I just uh, talking to Elizabeth May earlier this morning on the program, and I asked her about that as a priority. And, and certainly it would be. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, is, is uh, going to be pushing that. And in a minority parliament, that may actually come to pass. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, they took a run at that when he had a majority, and it didn't seem to work out for a variety of reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what about what about the, the, the division that's going on here uh, with the, the federal government uh, and, and what's happening in Alberta? And I, I agree with you. I mean, I saw the numbers, and I saw Coins call on them, too, about, about the wealth that's in Alberta right now. Uh, they can point to some stats, though, Christo, to say, look at, uh, you know, the, this industry, the oil industry is not as, as productive and a, as, it's not growing the way that we'd like to grow. There are fewer jobs there, but we can make that same argument here in Ontario, can't we? Look at our steel industry. Look at the auto industry. I mean, there are fewer people working than in those industries than there were years ago. I mean, that's 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 really a, an example of what's going on in the 21st century economy more than it is as something that's actually happening in Alberta only. Well, no, and I mean, certainly, and I mean, like, some Albertans in the, in the coin column notes that, you know, the Liberals did seem to give some sort of special treatment to SNC-Lavalin, but we have to also be real that, I mean, Justin Trudeau, many people were calling for this, to nationalize Oshawa GM, to nationalize that plant and use it to, say, build green cars or green transit. Uh, and the federal government didn't do that. The provincial government didn't do that. And so, you know, this argument that, you know, the West is being ignored and it's all about Ontario and Quebec, I don't think is strictly true. On the one hand, you know, Alberta, Ontario and Quebec are where the, the, the lion's share of the seats are. And because Ontario and Quebec are more competitive, because they don't just vote for one party, the same party every election, there's more at stake for the parties to invest time and energy and policy points to those provinces. Maybe that's a lesson to Alberta and Saskatchewan. If you keep voting for only one party... All the parties will ignore you, including the party you vote for. But I think it goes to this fact that Trudeau spent $4.5 billion. He found it in his pocket because it wasn't in the budget. 
He found $4.5 million to buy a pipeline to make Alberta and Saskatchewan happy. He did not find $4.5 billion to fix Indigenous reserve issues. He did not find $4.5 billion to nationalize GM. He did not find $4.5 billion to fight systemic underemployment in many parts of the Maritimes. But he did find it for Alberta. And so I do find it kind of, because again, I think Justin Trudeau was probably fought harder for Alberta than he did any other region of the country in some ways. And he seems to be punished for it. And same thing with Rachel Notley. Rachel Notley fought hard for her province in terms of the energy industry, both within it and you know in, in the Federation. But, but it seems like they were unrewarded. And again, I think fundamentally Albertans need to realize that if you're going to keep punishing people who fight for you, you're not going to have anyone to fight for you, including the conservatives that currently vote for you. And therein lies the problem. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like a crying wolf to suggest that, you know, well, we don't have proper representation. You had a chance on election night to do something about that. And, and you know, the, the team you backed lost. That's, that's the, the economic reality and the political reality. But this has been generational now. I mean, you know, you mentioned Pierre Trudeau. I mean, they go back to the days, and he butted heads with Peter Lougheed on a pretty regular basis, too. It just yeah. seems like it's almost in their DNA. No, and I get it. I get that the fundamental... Alberta has a lot of natural resource wealth, and that, you know, on the one hand, that, re, you know, natural resources are clearly provincial under the Constitution, as we understand it. Then again, uh, there are things about, that are national in interest, such as the, the transportation and international sale of those resources. And then as well, in our, in our current context, there's the environmental concern. And so there's a whole bunch to balance there. So whether it was ensuring that the oil wealth is shared equally in some manner to help the whole country in the 80s, and that's what Pierre Trudeau was talking about, or whether it's how energy interacts with the environment, which is what we're talking about now, there is going to be that conflict. But I think at the end of the day, you know, Alberta, um, again, Justin Trudeau is not fighting the energy industry. Again, I, I, I I don't see where that's coming from. And I do wonder, you know, what this is fundamentally being driven by. I think that it's being driven by a perception more than a reality. There's a perception that the current government is anti-energy. But again, the Conservative Party's two big platform pieces, three big platform pieces, were one, we're not Justin Trudeau, two, we're going to give you a tax cut, three, we're going to build some pipelines. Justin Trudeau's three campaign platforms were one, I'm not Andrew here, two, I'm going to give you a tax cut, three, I'm going to build some pipelines. They literally ran on very similar things. And so the Conservative people in Alberta have a much more friendly government than, say, an NDP voter in B.C. who voted for a very different vision than what Justin Trudeau is offering. And yet I don't see any NDP or Green uh, supporters calling for separation right now. And in some ways it's odd. You're hearing more separation calls, at least in public, from conservatives in the West than you are from the Bloc Québécois even in some ways. It's bizarre. Uh, It's a really interesting time. I mean, of course, Separatism in Quebec is much more stable. It's not really high right now, but it'll probably never go away. Whereas in the West, the second a conservative government gets elected, you can mark my words, Wexit will effectively disappear from mainstream discourse, even though some people will probably still hold on to it. Christo, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. Christo Avalis, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.